0: Welcome to Libraries leading the New Normal. My name is David Lankis and I'm here with Mike Eisenberg. We're going to be having an interesting conversation today. This is, uh, for now at least, a special segment in the uh, Skillset podcast where we're really trying to figure out what does life look like in the new normal and how libraries uh, are affected and can affect the community. We spent a little bit of time interviewing some some folks who are setting that agenda, but we wanted a space that we could do a little decompressing, talking around it, and That's what we're doing. I just want to quickly, uh, before I hand it over to Mike, thank uh, our sponsors, the University of South Carolina iSchool, Publishers Weekly, and Ace Chicago Events for helping put us together. Yanni, our behind the camera, well, I guess behind the microphone technician who's making this all happen. (laughs) Good evening, Mike.
1: How are you doing? I'm doing well, Dave. Good to see you. I'm here in upstate New York, uh, our old haunt. Um, hiding out from the virus. Um, but uh, let's get right to it. Uh, I just want to remind people because uh, this is only our second episode that libraries leading the new normal uh, came about because uh, I woke up in the middle of the night going, wait a second. I mean, this is a terrible thing, this coronavirus and the things we've gone through and what we're all facing. And it's some tremendous tragedies. But also, there have been some maybe positives in terms of people who've taken a deep breath and there's a some life-changing, sea change, groundbreaking, transformative things happening, like, you know, Zoom meetings and online learning and parents hanging out with their kids and those kinds of things. And libraries and librarians have a major role in supporting things now, but also down the road, when we decide do we really want to go back 100% to the way things were? And that's what we mean by the new normal. You know, are there some things that have happened now in this almost year off from the normal um, that we want to keep? And I think that's an interesting conversation to have. And I decided that uh, you know the person I'd most like to talk to about this is my good friend and uh, colleague Dave Lankis. So. Uh, That's what I contacted Dave and he said sounds like a good idea. I just happened to do some podcasting with Publishers Weekly and the University of South Carolina. Why don't we just jump into that? Sounded good. And some of the topics we're going to talk about in this uh, podcast situation will be what does it mean because of COVID and lockdowns and things like that? What about social justice, kind of things that are happening in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, diversity? What about... Miss and disinformation, credibility information, just a little going on there. And we talked about that quite a bit in the last episode about information and insurrection. What about kids and learning and teachers and online, virtual, as well as face-to-face? And then virtual work. I mean, a lot of people, um, librarians included, are working from home, huh? Is there a way or a desire to, to weave that in? And so there's all kinds of things that uh, we can talk about and will be talking about. But there is one thing that we always want to keep first and foremost and that, how, what what is the effect and impact of libraries and lo- librarians on this? Both, how does it affect libraries and librarians, but how can libraries and librarians be a force for good in moving to the nor- new normal? And so that is the uh, the plan for the podcast. Um, we're going to, we structure each episode with these intros, which we're doing right now. And then Dave and I will take a pause and, and we'll talk about what's up, what's up with him, what's up with me, real short. And then we'll jump into our main topic for the podcast. And today's topic is going to be about COVID-19 uh, vaccinations and the whole vaccination Uh, challenge that the country is facing right now and and the world in some ways uh, that we'll be talking about we'll take that in two blocks of about 10 to 15 minutes each Uh, and in the future sometimes we'll have some guest speakers and then we'll close with the required uh, final uh, bit in each of our podcasts and that's the awesome library thingy of the episode and Dave will have one and I will too so with that, I'll uh, turn it back to Dave to see if he has any comments or questions or, uh, or uh, things to add to that.
0: No, I think you did well. I think, um, once again, we're getting a little bit more loose on our second one. So um, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, let's get going.
1: All right, let's get to it. Yanni, give us a little uh, uh, break music, and then we'll come right in with uh, what's up? Well, um, I'll give it a start, Dave. What's up with me? First of all, again, being here in upstate New York last uh, weekend, we had uh, anywhere between 10 and 15 below zero. It's been a while since I've been in that kind of temperature, uh, but it's been really wonderful to be up here. And, uh, you know, it's a different world now than it used to be with the internet. And I have full internet access here in the backwoods. And there's a cell tower that i can see it's almost line of sight so now i even have great cell service and 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 access so but what's up with me is uh, trying to get vaccinated you know i'm 71 years old i qualify i'm a resident here right now in new york state and so i you know got online just like everybody else and it was a nightmare and uh it was really frustrating and i spent hours and hours and hours And then just by stroke of luck on Saturday morning, there was an appointment up in Potsdam, New York, which is about three hours or more away from here. And I clicked on it and I got it. And then I was able to get one for Carol, my wife, for the next day. Couldn't get one for Saturday, but we got one for Sunday and we got in the car and we drove off. But the whole way about it, I'm thinking is, yeah, I'm lucky. You know, I know how to work the system. I know how to search for things i'm a trained librarian after all but what do the other people do and and how and it just shouldn't be so i thought that'd be a good topic for us and that's my what's up and i got vaccinated and it was it was easy Woo-hoo. so <laughs> how about you dave what's up pl-
0: you're gonna go clubbing huh? later now
1: with the, your <laughs> vaccination likely. Yeah.
0: Before I get into it, I I think it's important. You you, you clearly have have been spending time in many different places. People need a geography lesson because you said upstate New York, but you lied. Because as we all know, there's New York City. Upstate New York is basically Westchester County. Then you've got central New York, the northern tier, the southern tier, the the western. What's up with me? I'm Uh, in the capital district.
1: I'm in the capital district. There you go.
0: This, this week has been a perfect example of the life of an academic administrator. Um, I, I I I know, unless Johnny gets his way, we're not actually doing video, but I'm showing Mike a copy of a book that I've been spending way too much time with recently. And I don't know if mm. Jeff Katzer assigned this to you when you were back in the doctoral days. Uh, of, course uh, was, of course he did. Of course he did. Yeah, we were both, Mike and I are both a product of Syracuse University's. Uh, doctoral program. And I've been reading Foundations of Behavioral Research by Fred Kurlinger, uh, the sure. third edition. Curlinger. I think he's now up to, fit, to fifth. And so that was fun. And then um, doing that, figuring out how we can get uh, proper course enrollments and how credit hour increases divide by faculty load, divide by class type, divide by my sanity. And then today learned that um, we were invited to a second round of an IMLS grant. So, you know, there's there's been there's been I've always said that a professor is, is three things. They're they're a uh, they're a writer, they're a secretary and they are a uh, performer. And so, you know, between teaching, research and service, I've been doing them all anyway. So, yes, it's been fun.
1: Yeah, that, that 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 is really interesting and I'm really glad that I'm no longer the dean um <laughs> ha- having to uh, do those things. But again, I, I will say that uh when I was dean it was actually the most rewarding and creative thing that I did. Um so uh I do it again in a heartbeat, but not but not this heartbeat, not this lifetime. All right, so that sounds pretty good, Dave. That sounds really interesting, and yes, I remember those classes with Jeff. By the way, I just wanted to say to people that may not be aware that IMLS is the Institute for Museum and Library Services. It is a federal agency. It is somewhat independent. It's not under any of the other major uh, uh, cabinet uh, um, agencies and divisions, and it's just for libraries and museums. And it's a wonderful Um, agency that has supported the field very well. Okay. And we'll probably be talking about them.
0: Yeah, because because there's an interesting conversation going on right now, which is most, uh, the majority of of foreign governments have something called, you know, ministry of culture, um, which where libraries and museums normally sit, they also include music and the arts, and ours is not. And so the closest comparable Mm -hmm. thing we have is IMLS, but it's It's a different beast, but then there's now a discussion about whether they want to elevate IMLS to be a cabinet level office of of culture. So we'll have to talk about that in the future. It will get into IMLS
1: folks. Yeah, because you know there. yeah, that's an interesting possibility. All right. So we'll take another just very short break, Yanni, and then we'll come back and get to our main topic, which is uh, COVID, COVID vaccinations, information, libraries, and What do we do about cleaning up this mess and getting everybody vaccinated? So take it away, Yanni. right. So Dave, I'll kick it off because I alluded to it in my what's up. And that is, um, you know, it shouldn't be that hard to get us all vaccinated. You know, you see the movies. What's the one with Dustin Hoffman where they're, you know, the Ebola breakout, whatever. And the the minute they figure out what the vaccine is, the whole world is vaccinated like the next (laughs) week. Now, I'm not saying it should be like that, but there should be a little more systematic rollout. I mean. It really isn't or shouldn't be that that complicated. But the way it has rolled out, there's no central organization either on the national level or even on the state level. I mean, the states are supposed to be in charge. But if you call up the state thing, well, first of all, you know, you're lucky if you get through in an hour and a half. And if you do get through, um, they will help you. And then they'll say, well, I'm sorry, there are no appointments. And they'll say call back tomorrow. And tomorrow you start all over again. Now, some states have waiting lists, I'm told. I said that to a friend who's in Florida and they laughed at me and said, uh, yeah, you just let me know how that's going to work because it's not working here and I can't get vaccinated. And then it's different in my home state of Washington and it's different here in New York and everything else. And I was able to work the system. I mean, I qualify. I'm 71. My wife is... Uh, I'm not going to give her age, but she qualifies. And she uh, is also um, an at-risk person because of her asthma and things. So we qualify. But, you know, it was constantly adding in the same information over and over, um, starting from scratch every time, um, clicking, renewing, and then it wouldn't let you renew. And I figured out the gaming and blah, blah, blah. And then sure enough, as I said, Saturday morning, just having to say, all right, I'll give it another try because I would do that for hours every day, and all of a sudden I'm clicking and I'm noticing that new times are coming up, and there are actually some availability things. So I quickly scheduled Carol for some time in February, and then um, I kept clicking. And by the way, not right here. You know, it would be nice if I could only drive forty-five or minutes or an hour to SUNY Albany or something, but no. But I got an appointment in Potsdam for her in February. And I click, click, click. And all of a sudden one opens up for the same day for, for Saturday. So I quickly get on and I go back in, try to get her on. No, no, but I got one for her for the next day. So yes, we wound up staying in a motel in, Pla- in uh, Potsdam, New York overnight with 15 below zero. And they have a very nice bagel place in town. So it was, it was okay. But again, I mean, should that be the way it is? And can't we do something about that? And what is the role of libraries in that? You know, we're information people and I have some ideas about that, but uh, I just wanted to put it out there that we should be thinking about, even if the government is not doing the right thing or doing an efficient and effective thing, Can libraries help with this kind of a problem now where you got into COVID, but also getting ready for the next one because there will be a next something that is just like this in some way? What do you think?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I I always, when you say the government, right, it's like, well, which one are we talking about? Because one of the things Mm -hmm. that, you know, I've been fascinating when I've been talking to some really outstanding. Uh, public library directors, and I'm thinking Gina Millsap out in Topeka, Kansas, she says, we are the government. Right? The public library mm. is part of the government. And uh, she had experience, I won't speak for her, but during Kansas, when it had its uh, experiment with lack of taxations and such, they were, in many ways, the public library was the only functioning part of government standing. And they still had to provide mm. service. They had to connect literacy services. They brought in and did partnerships with not-for-profits and for-profit companies to make things happen. And, um, you know, I think that that we do a disservice, that I think libraries do an incredible job at providing service and connecting their community, but we can't disconnect the fact that that is as a part of the government. Uh, And there's an efficiency that can be learned there. Now, as you move in and you talk about connecting and distributing and different services, things get complicated, and I think absolutely, I think one of the things that, that that I was a big proponent of and we saw happen in San Francisco, we saw happen in many places, which was librarians actually doing some of the contact tracing. Uh, and there was a yeah. resistance because, well, librarians are about privacy and this would break privacy. And I said, that's why we want librarians there, because they do respect privacy. They're going to ensure that that's considered. And if we want people to stay home with COVID, we better make sure they're hooked up to other services that can make sure that they're able to stay home and connected. And that's what
1: librarians do is connect to these different services and find out. Trusted new. So I, I think there's a service, trusted, trusted service. librarians are trusted. People trust because li- we both know that librarians will twist themselves into pretzels in order to be careful and um, respect privacy and make sure the data and make sure it's done right. And even handed. So, yeah, right. It, it I don't know who's going to jump in first.
0: Go because, ahead. You well, do it. So, one more thing, and which is because I know you want to talk about, and we'll, we'll evolve into the sort of disaster responsiveness. But to, yeah. to jump ahead on one specific point, which is if we want librarians to be able to play this role, particularly the idea that librarians can serve as a safety net with, for people without a lot of technology. So, they have a place to go, a person to talk to, et cetera. Then mm-hmm. um, one of the things that is a really hot topic right now is are they first responders and should they therefore be in part of the pool of the 1As and 1Bs that are getting vaccinated? Yeah. Um, there was a huge, I, I, before I, the vaccines came yeah. out, You know, the idea that libraries were going to be opening and not thought of that way was kind of terrifying.
1: Yeah, I thought of that, particularly if they're opening. I mean, if they're online and stuff, then not necessarily. And I think that's a whole... Another question, but but what I'm thinking is, if, yes, and I have some examples, and and in fact, my awesome library thingy is an example of a library that's kind of doing the kind of thing I might be advocating for related to this. But it's not widespread, it's not systematic, and libraries haven't accepted that when there is a crisis, that we kick in with another level or type of service that we do that's not that's probably beyond what we normally do on a daily basis, but that it's systematic and it's planned and we kick it in. You know, after Katrina, libraries were a major source where people went to to find out about their loved ones and where they might be. There was a, a massive interchange about that. It's where people went for information about how to fill out forms to get, you know, um, finances and housing and, and the like. So, but again, we haven't developed systematic systems that trigger in place that I think that libraries can do. So it's not just a one-off that, Oh, this library is doing a great job with doing that stuff. But that one over here doesn't know what to do about that. So developing systems and protocols and ways of doing this, I think would be interesting if libraries are willing to assume that. I'll just say one last thing. Libraries today, right? um, We've always had telephone reference. Well, we always had reference services and information services. And then we had telephone reference service and things. And now there's a lot of live chats, right? In in libraries where they, they do live chat. So why couldn't we use that infrastructure When there's a crisis or an emergency like getting people vaccination appointments, it's fairly simple. And if we did a one-on-one where when someone contacts their library, either through telephone or online or whatever, that librarian either assigns that person who's called in or um, chatted in somebody else to work with them until they get the appointment or they do it. In other words, we've developed a system where we don't say, well, I'm sorry, we didn't be able to do it today. Give us a call back tomorrow and we'll try it again. So that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about, that we build in a really systemic role if we want to uh, assume that in the new normal, libraries are maybe not first responders, but maybe second responders, maybe information responders. Maybe we put up the networks if necessary. I'll shut up. Your turn.
0: Don means a gigabit libraries uh, talks about libraries as second responders and what that means. Um, mm. But you know, just to deconstruct a couple of those things, because uh, there's a lot. So, <laughs> a couple of things that, that struck me, and I'll, I guess I'll work backwards to Katrina and start start with the, uh, the forward side, which is, don't we pay taxes to public health officials to do these kinds of things? Don't we um, have the idea that that you know why do libraries have to take on everything, um, that, that we do have community connections, we can be part of those community connections. But at the same time, when we're talking about building systems, is there a reason that it's the libraries and not other institutions
1: or partnering with other institutions? Um, so that's, that, a, that's a great question. That is a, a perfect question. And my answer is, yes, there are public health and that is part of uh, their responsibility, but no, most public health officials and public health workers are not necessarily information professionals. And they're trained in a certain types of information and dissemination, but they're not creative information problem solvers the way trained librarians are to be able to know the, the ins and outs and the back doors and all the other stuff. So where the information, and of course we want to team up with them, but librarians should be uniquely um Able to find and deliver this kind of service. That's the way I think. I'm an information professional. Oh, my whole family and friends—they all turn to me whenever there's this kind of a problem. To to do it right, I took reference. So, I mean,
0: yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Which is, I, I think, oftentimes public libraries think they have to do everything, and the notion of saying, "Look, what oh. we do really well—some logistics, but a lot of the outreach." I mean, the, one of the things that drives me. Freaking nuts is the idea that, you know, it's like you you hear these amazing, brilliant, wonderful people and they're doing amazing, wonderful things about, you know, helping doctors across borders and helping people in all these hard situations. And, and they come and they, they give these inspirational talks to libraries, uh, librarians and library conferences. And they, the first question almost inevitably is how can libraries help? and after having Mm -hmm. spent an hour of this wonderful sainted human being telling you about the importance of human connection telling you about the importance of helping people understand and equip themselves they turn around and say well we do have some pamphlets that you could put in the lobby you know or we do have (laughs) wouldn't it be nice if we could go and you know have a talk in your building as if you know the librarians the trained information professionals aren't adding value to that and so absolutely that notion of being able to reach out and connect we we had a situation, so the year before I came to South Carolina was the, well, I've heard it referred to as the the 1,000-year flood. I think we're down now to 800-year to flood, but a, a massive <laughs> flooding event. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and, and the university did something, and they've done it since for COVID as well, I really respect. They said, hey, this thing is interesting. It's happening in our backyard. Here are some grants to faculty. Go see what's happening. And a lot of the iSchool faculty got some, and they did studies about sort of how libraries respond in this time. And um, Mm -hmm. and and I won't spend the next three hours telling you about the wonderful things, but there were some wonderful things. Um, But they what they found is that when FEMA showed up, they they FEMA quickly learned that they went to the public libraries, not just because they had a bookmobile they could load full of water and not just because they usually had power, but because that was a trusted place that the community would feel comfortable
1: coming, having these discussions and connecting. So, what? I, uh, yes. And, you know, libraries are now written into the FEMA regulations, and that's a great first step. But what I think we lack is the list of protocols and actions that each library might consider taking. And that, that's something I think we might come up with because, um, you know, there's going to be another flood in South Carolina. You know, it's coming and whatever. Isn't that happen every week in Charleston? I mean, you know, the. I, I hate to say I love Charleston. I have good friends there. But wouldn't it be nice if the libraries across South Carolina and South Carolina Public Health and FEMA and all this other stuff know that, bam, this is the services that libraries are going to provide during this crisis? You know, I think it was in your last, uh, the last time that you talked about your awesome library thingy, right? It was about uh, the Toronto library that reached out to its uh, older clients and whatever. See, that's another thing that we can do because we have to reach those who are not coming to us but are there and don't know enough to contact us. So what if libraries had lists of their um, patrons, their library customers, And we reached out to those in particular situations to say, hey, do you need help with getting your COVID vaccine? We can help. And here's how we did. And maybe we create one of those phone tree kind of things, or it's like a a campaign calling thing. I don't know, but I can just imagine, wouldn't it be great if I could connect with a librarian who's going to get me that appointment and work with me until I'm satisfied and and, and safe. Wouldn't that be something?
0: Yeah, and, this, and, then that, and then I want to reach back to when you were talking about Katrina, because a very interesting thing happened with Katrina, and I know you know Beth Patan and, and other folks who are working on that area, but the role that libraries play and the partnership, to me, gets wrapped up in the story about what happened post-Katrina, which was, mm-hmm. and actually not the libraries, it's a story about the, the New Orleans newspapers, the Times-Picayune, which was they had a series of online comments and what's going on in the community. This was back in the internet when you could actually have open comments and you know not turn into yeah, a Nazi right. propaganda camp. But, um, and what they quickly realized was having one for New Orleans didn't work. They needed one community by community, parish by parish, yes, and yes. Uh, ward by ward. And what happened is these online community discussion groups, based on the word, became the authoritative sources. And what would happen is the the citizens would go to FEMA. They would go to state officials. They would say, how do I get housing? How do I apply for this relief? How do whatever? And they would get wrong answers. They get conflicting answers. And so what they do is they went online and they found out that citizens who gave consistently correct answers, in other words, fought that fight, became the authorities. And and that idea that authority, um, well, credibility, trustworthiness, shifted from the authority, this is my title, this is what I'm supposed to know, to reliability, speaking of Curlinger and research, meaning that they were consistently getting reliable answers over and over again, and their status didn't matter. And when I think about this world, because we're living in a divided world where just because you're president- depending on which side of January 20th you're on is either, you know, horrible and terrible and needs to be deposed or whatever, um, doesn't give you credibility anymore. It's having mm-hmm. that relationship. It's consistently connecting, consistently helping at a local level, which libraries are perfectly situated for. And so when we talk about what building did. these systems, I don't think it's, I think it's a system only in the sense that it connects a bunch of, connects well and without a lot of friction, the very local systems that which is what takes into the context and works in Plattsburgh and works in Charleston and works across the way. And, and absolutely the way that we should be able to quickly marshal those resources and sort of roll out roll out the, the librarian support army um, to partner yeah. with public health, to partner because we know our local communities to get on the phone, And and roll it out. I think absolutely. That's important.
1: All right. So we're going to take a short break in order to catch our breath. And then we're going to come back and talk a little more about this, because I think we're really on to something. And uh, uh, I'd like to develop the ideas more uh, a little more and not just think about. Public libraries, but academic and school and schools like yours and mine and things like that. So, Yanni, we're going to take a short break and then we'll come back and we will uh, have part two of uh, what do we do about getting vaccinated? All right, Dave, so I'll give you first, first shot uh, in segment two here. Uh, what else did you want to follow up on or put on the table?
0: The two things I, I, I one seems odd, but one I think is central to what librarians do. So I'll start with the odd one first. Um, I think that we need to talk about intellectual property and in vaccinations. Uh, we, intellectual property is something that we don't, is central to how libraries of all types, academics, schools, how we function. I think the pandemic has done an amazing job of demonstrating just how fractured and problematic our copyright, patent, and intellectual property regime is in the United States, Um, from the idea that one of the first services we saw out of school and public libraries were story times online, going to Facebook and reading out books. And suddenly the question was, did you just violate copyright in doing that? And authors and publishers have been fantastic about giving a pass, but it's still there about what, what you right. can and cannot do online in person. But the one that hit me was the that, so the United States has just invested billions and billions of dollars in the development of these vaccinations. They funded the vaccinations um, and they bought them. And now what happens is those patents are owned by the people who developed them, Merck and the pharmaceutical companies. And the question becomes, and the, and this has a role, this has two things, one, Um, We talk about needing to produce more vaccinations. Partly, we can't go to different manufacturers because they haven't licensed the technology. And when you look in an international context, who gets to make these vaccines for Africa and Asia and New Guinea and all these, when in essence, the U.S. is already, not only did we pay for it with public funding, but we let them keep the patents on it afterwards. I think that's an interesting conversation.
1: Um, and then that's really important. So what you're saying is, our whole intellectual property system really needs to be rethought in a uh, 21st century technology and manufacturing and type environment. We really need to rethink a lot of this stuff.
0: Yeah, and, and the public good side of this, this idea that, yes. that uh, you know a huge amount of the <laughs> Industrial research complex, of which I include universities uh, and and these private companies, you know, we get a lot of public funding for producing some really amazing stuff, but we don't necessarily follow up on it. Um, some of the data, whether the data is available or not available from these these randomized clinical trials, a lot of that data yeah. gets reported to the FDA, but is kept confidential by these companies. Can we get in there and begin to interrogate and look at that and And so once again, I don't care what end of the ideological spectrum, starting with the Bush and then Obama and then Trump administrations, all of them have tried to create regulations where federally funded publications from federally funded research dollars will be released out into the world. And we're still fighting this fight to to make that happen. And so when you talk about best practices and systems and vaccinations and, and transparency, because that's the other part of this is the How do we get people to believe that the vaccines aren't Bill Gates putting chips in our arms? Um, I think a lot of that can come from transparency. And one of the barriers to that level of transparency to build that trust in the vaccination in these systems is an intellectual property barrier. And and I want people to make money. I want to make money, but I also want to be healthy.
1: (laughs) Well, there's a public good aspect of it that we've really ignored. And also you know, the government's role. Um, there are some that say, you know, you know, the the negative part about the government, you know, don't trust anybody that says, hi, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. But the truth is the government did help. The government created the internet. You know, the government um, has put money uh, in terms of providing bandwidth and access uh, to rural communities. Now it's not enough and it needs to be more. And we've talked about that a little last time, but you know, they've done a lot of good and a lot of this research and just what you said that uh, they've they've paid for scholarships for students who go to school and learn how to do microbiology and then go to work for these companies. I mean, we're all in this together and there is something called the public good. So I'm, I'm with you. And that's a, you know, a, a, a different take on, on this uh, problem, but an important one, because there will be another situation That comes up like this. And the same thing could be said about um, wireless and internet access and things that, you know, who should pay for that? Well, there's a public good in certain communities and things. And my community here had to fight for years in order to get that new cell tower finally. And it's a public health, it's a public safety issue, first and foremost. And it should not be that the economics, um, take over and everything. So I'm with you there.
0: So here's my question for you, which is, I mm-hmm. mentioned at the end of it, that that how do we build tra- intellectual property and transparency can feed into the notion of building trust. And I know one of the things that you're really interested in and thinking a lot about is this idea of information and misinformation. And as you said, we talked about a little bit with our insurrection but I think we need to, to spend a little time talking about anti-vaxxers and uh, mm-hmm. the idea of what's the role of libraries in public health from that perspective.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I, I, you, may, you, you uh, and others may think it's funny, but I would talk to um, what I think is the world's most successful way of dealing with this. And it's called Wikipedia. and It's called Jimmy Wales. And, you know, Wikipedia is not perfect. By any means. And there's a lot of um, difficulty and controversy and whatever. But Wikipedia has built a scalable system for trying to identify and provide um, credible and accurate information. And I think they've done a pretty good job of it, actually. Um, if you're not going to invest in commercial editors and all that kind of thing and pay people lots and lots of money, which is actually impractical, then I would like to have a conversation with Jimmy Wales about what does he see? Uh, and then for people that don't know, Jimmy Wales is the person that started Wikipedia and does it without making a profit. There are no ads on wikipedia and wikipedia is supported with donations and gifts from small people like us and they're constantly um having to ask um you know every now and then or it seems around holiday time you get a thing on the screen when you come up from wikipedia it says you know are you willing to make a donation but i have a lot of respect for what they did because they did it for that public good again and you know i use wikipedia all the time and uh, for a lot of things, it's it's pretty credible. And, that, and when it's not, it says it there. It says, you know, don't necessarily trust what's here. So I would ask that. I would also use crowdsourcing and rating systems like we do now. It's really funny. You know, you, you must do the same thing. You're going to go buy a new uh, coffee uh, uh, grinder or a, uh, you know, a coffee maker. And so you look at the reviews on uh, – amazon or something else and whatever and there are 372 reviews and there's always you know 10 to 20 that just trash it as the the worst possible thing you could possibly buy but then you look at it overall and you kind of weigh them and whatever and you make a decision you know there may be some of that ways for us to do more of that type of rating uh and whatever and i think there's for the search engine type folks, people, I think there's some money to be made in that kind of uh, system. So those are two answers.
0: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Wikipedia. I, I'm teaching a class this semester and they have an assignment. The assignment is more or less listen to an interview and then go find a bunch of resources based on the topic. And I had a student who put up going, I know to avoid Wikipedia, what other types of sources should I avoid? Now, these are graduate students in library science yeah and um and I said okay why would you avoid Wikipedia I think it's an excellent resource particularly as a starting and if you want a great place to sort of start your research it's it's a great place to do it um and it's funny when you mentioned no one has the money to buy a bunch of editors to, to create this stuff of course that was Encyclopedia Britannica and, right. and it the was the world it's like right yeah
1: and and those are always well, Bill Gates, we resources. can thank for that. Remember incarta yeah, right Encarta yep, came out yep. and destroyed you know, and bill bought us a, a third rate encyclopedia, put it online, and put Britannica out of business
0: right and then when well, then wikipedia put 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 that out of business put incarta
1: um, because it's a better product, exactly. right because people people um uh, spoke with their fingers, right? They 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 stopped going to Encarta and doing that, and they they went over to a, a better source. But yes, because librarians, we've done a disservice, and certainly classroom teachers have and whatever in in putting out there that well, you can't cite Wikipedia, you can't go to Wikipedia, you can't do it. That that was a you know a really kind of well, well be a mistake. Be careful. It's some librarians and some teachers. In fact, that was
0: part of the rest of my response was, here is the page Mm -hmm. for librarians, Wikipedia librarians. Here are the the Wikipedia days that academic libraries and public libraries have where they spend literally a day going through, adding citations, checking citations. Um, I was talking with, let's just say, a very large library, international library vendor that happens to have a couple of letters for a name. And several years ago, about actually about 10 years ago, because, you know, we're old now. Uh, and he was mm-hmm. uh, actually he offered to, in essence, I don't know if the words buy it, but support it, um, that that seeing the value of it, seeing this as an open resource, seeing the multiple editors. And so and and I remember in one of my first books when my first, very first citation was to Wikipedia, and my second citation was, and if you just and if you're upset, I just cited Wikipedia, get over it and And I got oh, all good. these emails from librarians around the world going, "Yeah, now if we could just get to wiki you wiki psych, we'll be fine. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah no, it, it, it and again, it's not perfect, and we can make it better or whatever, but it it is us. Wikipedia is us. It's a collective way, and we're supposed to be self-correcting. And so that's one way that that we could do that. And maybe in local communities and things, Uh, librarians can do that too. you remember what you and I had uh, said about the uh, the reference project that we were trying to create that if a librarian recommends a source you know if you go to a librarian and you go to your online uh, reference chat to a librarian you ask for a recommendation you can pretty much trust that's going to be a pretty credible source that's that's powerful and if there was a way for us to capture that and whatever, and for li- libraries and librarians to have a role in that, when it comes to things like COVID and other things, uh, I think it would be important. The other, uh, before I forget, because I'm an old guy and I do forget things, um, I wanted to say that we don't also want to have every library have it to reinvent the wheel. So if we are able to come up with a list of protocols on how to do something or trusted sites and whatever, we need to share those so that we have the, the collective knowledge and wisdom of the library community that we can bring to bear on these things.
0: Right, and that's where context comes in. I mean, jumping back to mm-hmm. the to the discussion about Katrina, which is... <laughs> example I always give is if a reporter calls up and asks for a good site for hate groups recruiting on the internet, the Stormfront website is the best resource ever. If a 10-year-old's calling for after-school activities, probably not the same source. (laughs) So, you know, it isn't inherent in the nature of the source that makes it good or bad. It's the context. And back to the The idea of what's going to work with our first and second responder, it's the context. I I was uh, recently, there was a proposal going in about and I think we talked about news deserts last time or we talked about mm-hmm. food deserts did we talk about news deserts where Guess local papers are disappearing yeah, yeah and that libraries oh right, and libraries could jump into this and and once again the pushback from librarians was we want the community to to sort of educate themselves and become their own reporters we'd be happy to support it And I think that that's that's one of the libraries should be the
1: place that nurtures these things. The local library doesn't do have to do it all, but they provide a a platform for that. I heard something on the radio about this nine year old kid that did a local newspaper in order to raise money to help support people in the in the pandemic. And he I mean, you know, he got 25 or 50 subscribers or whatever that it supported it. I mean, local communities can do that. Look at, you, you know, the news these days up here where I am. There's a Facebook group for the lake area here that people post pictures and all kinds of things. That's really kind of the local newspaper in some ways, although I do subscribe to the Schenectady Gazette, even when I'm in Seattle. And I check it, although uh, the comments to the letters for the editor are fascinating. Um, Dave, we got about uh, three to five minutes left in this segment at the most. So, um um, you know where' where should we go with this um, how should we kind of try to tie things up and I think we're going to have a lot more discussions about the role of libraries and the new normal when it comes to you know climate change and missing and disinformation and all the kinds of uh, pandemics flooding and all kinds of things like that so um, where do you think we should be uh, Moving the conversation at least right now to kind of pull things together
0: I think that the idea that that libraries need to uh, and I include academic and school libraries the special libraries they need you know the their superpower in this is to take a community that's hurting that needs guidance in an information crazy world that they need to provide context specific what works in this environment in this context mm-hmm. that they need to provide a level of authority that comes from performance, that is, instead of saying, this is what the government says, what they say is, this is what's worked and what's not. And I think that they don't, and I and I think that one of the things that that we should come out of COVID, and we said this coming out of Katrina, we said this coming out of different hurricanes, but we need to be, we know that libraries, particularly public libraries, have a strong role to play in responsiveness to disasters, um, and right. they need to be re- thought in terms of what role they play. And it's not just they're a building, it is this logistical support. It is this information connection. Yeah. It is this people to people connection. And um, I know there are great examples out there. We need to gather them and we need to, to um, as you say, create systems that can be contextualized but implemented broadly.
1: Yeah, I, I like the idea. I mean, I, I would think right now developing simple checklist. you can't put more than 10 items on them what are the 10 responses or the five responses that every school library should do in times of a uh, an environmental catastrophe whether it's a hurricane or a fires or flooding or an earthquake or whatever and the same thing for academic and public and whatever. What are, what are those things? And then we can fill in the background. But we've got to limit it, you know. And then working with FEMA to really say substantially, all right, what do you mean? What is this? I like the idea of second responder role. Um, and, and what does that really look like? And can we flesh that out and – um and share that and agree with that. Cause you know, you know, right now we know if I was setting up a new library, I know how to set up an information service reference service. I know how to build a collection. I know how to circulate and do things, but I don't know what is my, my infrastructure of the five or 10 things that I have to do if there is a local crisis. So I think that, and, and I think that's reasonable. And it's from an information perspective. It's not that we're going to cook meals. But we're going to tell people, we're going to help people know that we can get the information where they can get those meals. It's, it's well, that kind of thing. P- it's all about information.
0: Yeah. And one last point, which is the, this needs to happen, particularly in outreach to underserved communities where libraries can be their best. Oh, right? yeah. If libraries show up into a predominant populations of brown and, and black people that they have misserved for years and suddenly say, don't worry, we have the right answer for you. Yeah, that's yeah, bad. No. If they, instead they show that's up right. and say, let's find together the best answers, let's find, all right, who are the elders here? Who are the, who are the people who know what's going on? Let's, let's give those folks, those voice a platform, make them available. That's where the localness of libraries will really pull out. And that's where, you know, when they're talking about now sending vaccine, vaccines to CVSs, the reason they're going to pharmacies is because yeah. in many of these communities, the pharmacy is the primary healthcare provider. And, you know, let's look at the reality on the ground. And libraries need to be immensely and acutely aware what the realities are on the ground.
1: Yeah. And what what about those librarians reaching out to CVS or to Walgreens or to Kinney Drugs and say, how can we help you to get the word out properly to the people you need? How can we team up with you in order to do that? Because, yes, that's where I got my COVID test. Um, was at a drive through Walgreens. And so um, and I and it wasn't easy to actually schedule that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent. And one of the things that so um, I'm going to end with just uh, a, another little story is I turned to the University of Washington folks. And also I turned to the folks back at Syracuse. And I was going to do this to you here about South Carolina. I think the iSchools and our students could launch this a one-to-one help service for people in underserved communities on getting COVID vaccines. I think that if your students would... Make connections, let's say, to the African American churches or just any churches, to community health centers, to local doctors who can't handle it themselves, and put together these pods and these teams of students and faculty, and then librarians and others that wanted to do it to line up one to one. You know, if you got 50 people doing it, then you got 50 people working with 50 people of need and then when they resolve that person then they can go on to the next one and thing so I think that and it has to be statewide uh, not statewide but it has to be localized like you said contextualized so um maybe a, I, and I know all the faculty and the students and the libraries everybody's overwhelmed but this is a crisis and and this is you know this is number one and if I knew that I could contact the local librarian here, To help me to line up with someone that's going to help me through the the tricks of the trade, the ins and outs, um, to get that, that, like what I did, right? I think that people would really uh, respond to that. So, yeah, we can't wait for the, the, the users, the normal users, the normal library patrons to come to us. The libraries have to reach out into those underserved communities or never served communities. Are you there? I'm there. I'm on it. <laughs> All right. Well, then, um, we're going to close this out. I hope uh, people have found the conversation interesting. I I have, and, and I always learn stuff from Dave, and I appreciate it. But what we normally do at this point is move ahead to our awesome library thingy. So, Yanni, give us just uh, a little music so we get a chance to catch our breath and maybe get my notes in front of me. And then, Dave, you'll start out with your awesome library thingy, and then I will too. So, cue the music. Dave, what do you got? What's your awesome library thingy for this episode? It is, frighteningly enough,
0: a book. Um, this is, mm. uh, it comes out of the um, Utrecht Library in the Netherlands. Um, a really amazing librarian, Ton van Viermen, um just retired, and they were going to have a big event to bring people from around the world in a conference, and then a COVID hit, and so they instead decided to produce a book. This book called Living Libraries, the House of the Community Around the World, uh, is a series of essays and articles, very approachable, beautiful color. I'm kind of jealous about the look of this one Um, on primarily public libraries, but talking about community centered librarianship in. And I'm just going to read some of the locations. Nepal, Haiti, Colombia, Bulgaria, Australia, Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste, Fiji, Belgium, India, Qatar, Kenya, uh, Italy, Sweden, Singapore, New Zealand. And it is just if you want a picture of what international public librarianship looks like uh, at its best, it's a free ebook. You can download it from the Utrecht Library. We'll put it in the Facebook um, site so you can get a link to it. And um, it's actually going to save me a lot of time working on my next book because I'm just going to steal most of it. But it, it is. The amazing work that librarians are doing to bring communities together, some of them wow. we talked about before being government, some, The Nepal has amazing libraries that aren't run by the government. They're run by not-for-profits and talks about how they do outreach and connect it in different ways. So it's just an absolutely fabulous book. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. It happens to have a chapter by me in it, but just ignore that one and read the rest. <laughs>
1: Could
0: what you what repeat
1: the title? Could you repeat the title?
0: Yep. Living Libraries, the house of the community
1: around the world. I love that. I I, I think that's great. So uh, my awesome library thingy relates to the, uh, the very topic we were talking about and the example I was talking about. And I came across an article, the Springfield, Massachusetts public library is helping Springfield seniors make vaccine vaccine appointments. And, uh, and there's an article in uh, the local newspaper, the Springfield, uh, well, or it, maybe it's on the library page. I don't know. It said after hearing about the complaints, uh, what they did is they uh, uh, t- uh, worked with the Department of Elder Affairs to team up in order to help people who are 75 years or older uh, make their appointments. And the city librarian and the department uh, set up a phone Help service to help those people do that. Uh, I also noticed that there are other people doing this individually. There was a an article in the uh, in, in Colorado about a woman uh, who is doing. They call her the vaccine whisperer because she knows how to get appointments. So she's doing that kind of thing, and they're doing that in some other communities as well. And I I applaud that. I would just like to see something systematic. Um, That kicks in, that reaches thousands and thousands. Um, But uh, uh, those two made me feel really good. And I thought that was pretty awesome library thingies.
0: Very much, very much so. And I think that's going to bring it to an end for this time. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank Publishers Weekly, the University of South Carolina, and Ace. Chicago events uh, for helping out, Yanni for being our producer, Mike Eisenberg, uh, our amazing uh, musician who played our our uh, intro and mid musics. Uh, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast, Spotify, whatever you, wherever you are, find us and and do it. Uh, and then contact us via the Facebook group Libraries Lead in the New
1: Normal. Mike, thank you. Please yeah. stay warm. Okay, Dave. Thanks. You take care. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Yanni, too. Bye now.